In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. I just want to take just a moment to acknowledge that my mom is here today. And um, uh, I'm alive because of her, uh, but I'm alive to Christ because of her. Uh, the Apostle Paul visited Thessalonica in northern Greece around the year A.D. 50. Paul spent three weeks in Thessalonica working at his tent-making business and proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah in the Jewish synagogue every Sabbath. He convinced some Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, including several prominent women, about Jesus, and a small Christian community was formed. The fledgling church soon experienced opposition from the Jews, and eventually an angry mob ransacked the house of Paul's host, Jason, and brought Jason and some other believers before the city officials with the following accusation. These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king. Jesus. Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy, fled at night to the nearby town of Berea. When Jews from Thessalonica followed them there, they moved on to Athens. In Athens, Paul began to feel orphaned without the, Th the, Th the Thessalonians and was anxious to hear how they were holding up. When he couldn't stand it any longer, he sent Timothy to find out. In the meantime, Paul moved on to Corinth, and it was probably during his stay in Corinth that Timothy met up again with Paul and reported that the Thessalonians were doing well, and they were standing firm in the Lord. Paul was comforted by Timothy's report, which is why our epistle reading this morning begins like it does. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we feel before our God because of you. Yet Paul was also aware that the young Thessalonian church was vulnerable and needed to be instructed in how to live between the first and second comings of Christ. He wrote, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians to teach new believers how to look ahead to Jesus' second coming while recognizing that his first coming had inaugurated God's kingdom here on earth and ought to shape the way they were living in the present. In other words, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians to teach Christians how to be Advent people. As we enter the season of Advent, Paul's words are for us as well. For we don't want just to be people who celebrate Advent. We want to be Advent people too. So how do we be like Advent people? How do we become Advent people? Three things. First, Advent people respond seriously to the reality of the first coming of Christ. 
because God really became a man, because that man Jesus really did the things the Bible says he did and said the things the Bible says he, did, he said, because Jesus really died and was buried and rose from the dead, because he really freed mankind from the bondage of sin and death, because he did it all out of love, and because the gospel is true, Advent people make Jesus the king and lord of their lives, giving him absolute supremacy in all things. This attitude is expressed in today's psalm. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. My God, I put my trust in you. For you are the God of my salvation. In you I have trusted all the day long. Advent people understand that becoming a Christian is a serious thing. At the beginning of his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul wrote, You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. In the ancient world, because you either lived in a small village or in a crowded city, any change you made to how you lived would become instantly obvious to everyone. If you were a Jew and you came to faith in Christ, you might stop observing dietary laws and ritual laws of purity and people would notice. If you were a Gentile and you came to faith in Christ, your moral behavior would change. You would stop, to, uh, stop attending pagan religious festivals and participating in the imperial cult and people would notice. The decision to follow Christ could cost you your livelihood or even your life. In 250 AD, the Roman Emperor Decius decreed that all citizens of the empire must take part in a general sacrifice and pour out a libation to the Roman gods, and many Christians refused and were imprisoned, tortured, and killed. Some Christians, however, proved unable to resist the pressure of the Roman authorities, and they renounced their faith, offering the prescribed sacrifice. These unbelievers came to be known as lapsi, or the lapsed. Most lapsi had given in reluctantly to Roman pressure and were immediately filled with deep regret. Their anguish was only heightened as they watched more courageous brothers and sisters remain faithful to Christ under torture, even unto death. Repentant lapsi wanted to return to the church, to be fortified by the sacraments and preaching should they need to face persecution again. After the death of Decius and with another persecution under Valerian on the horizon, bishops wrestled with the question of whether the lapsi should be allowed to rejoin Christian fellowship and under what conditions. We actually still have a letter that St. Cyprian Bishop of Carthage wrote Pope Cornelius on this very matter. He said, We should make a distinction, dearest brother, between, on the one hand, those who either have apostatized and are living heathenish lives or have become deserters to the heretics, and on the other hand, those who do not depart from the church's threshold, who constantly and sorrowfully implore divine and paternal consolation, professing that they are now prepared for the battle and ready to stand and fight bravely for the name of their Lord and for their own salvation. 
In these times we grant peace not to those who sleep, but to those who watch. We grant peace not amid indulgences, but amid arms. We grant peace not for rest, but for the field of battle. Our problem in the modern Western world is that we are rarely confronted with circumstances that publicly call our loyalty to Christ into question. It seems like the stakes are not as high as they once were, but in reality, they are as high as they've ever been. Our times are perilous because the conditions for spiritual slumber have never been more optimal. Advent people heed the words Jesus spoke to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Secondly, Advent people take the responsibilities that come with being in God's family seriously. God expects his children to grow and bear fruit their entire lives. In our hyper-individualistic culture, the temptation is to opt out of church family life, especially when it means chores, responsibilities, and the prospect of discipline. But brothers and sisters, God has not called us out of darkness into his wonderful light to sit on the cosmic couch and play with our cell phones like a teenager at a family gathering. We are expected to grow and bear fruit. In John 15, Jesus said as much to his disciples. He said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Avent people have a deep desire to grow day by day in the grace and knowledge of God. Their hearts readily join with the psalmist in saying, Show me your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Advent people sense their true purpose and calling during the post-communion prayer and say with conviction, And now, Father, send us out to do the work you have given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord, to him, to you, and to the Holy Spirit be honor and glory, now and forever. Amen. Having earlier in his letter praised the, the, the Thessalonians for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul challenged them to keep going, to keep growing. He said, Finally, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, ask yourselves this morning, does our participation in the life of Christ look any different today than it was a year ago? During this past year, have we abounded more and more in the adoration of our Lord, in prayer, in the reading of Holy Scripture? Have we abounded more and more in the giving of our time, our talents, and our treasure to the work of the kingdom? 
Have we abounded more and more in the fruit of the Spirit? Are we more loving, joyful, peaceable, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, or self-controlled? Paul told the the Thessalonians that they had to continually grow in the grace and knowledge of God and in obedience to his will. And why? He wrote, so that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Which brings us to our final point. Advent people take the promise of Jesus' second coming seriously. The early Christians were very concerned about Jesus' second coming and believed it was imminent. We see this clearly in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, in which he instructs believers not to abandon their work as they wait for the Lord's return and dispels any rumors uh, that were circulating that he had returned already. Jesus spoke frequently about the day of the Lord, a day of judgment when he would come back to establish God's kingdom fully and finally on earth as it is in heaven. Our gospel reading describes one such instance. In the days preceding Jesus' discourse, the disciples had witnessed him doing and saying things like Israel's prophets of old. They heard Jesus lament over Jerusalem like the prophet Jeremiah. They heard Jesus pronounce judgment over Jerusalem like the prophet Isaiah. They saw Jesus cleanse the temple and act out judgment like the prophet Ezekiel. And when they heard Jesus prophesy the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, they asked him, when would these things happen? What signs would indicate that they were about to take place? What signs would precede his second coming? And consistent with the Jewish prophetic tradition, Jesus groups these two similar events together and uses rich imagery to communicate what is the most important What are the most important things for people to understand about them? By speaking about the impending destruction of Jerusalem and his second coming at the same time, he is saying that both events share many of the same essential elements. Jesus begins with an image from the book of Isaiah describing the judgment of Babylon. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Jesus is saying that the coming destruction of Jerusalem and his second coming will be acts of judgment. Jesus then employs the familiar image of the Son of Man from the book of Daniel. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Jesus is identifying himself as the one to whom all power and authority has been given and is setting up his role as the judge of unfaithful Israel and the judge of all mankind at the end of the age. Jesus also communicates the same basic messages about his second coming that he did in many of his parables. His second coming will be sudden, like the closing of a trap, like the onset of Noah's flood, like the birth pangs of a pregnant woman, like a thief that comes in the night. And therefore, his followers ought to be alert Watchful and prepared. Jesus says, be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life that that day day catch you unexpectedly. 
Did you know that the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed by the Romans within a generation in A.D. 70? And that Christians then and now were given a very powerful reminder that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Advent people long for their master's return so that injustice, oppression, perversion, and pain will be done away with once and for all. Yet Jesus' second coming also causes them to work out their salvation day by day with fear and trembling because the thought of appearing before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the things done in the body remains an awesome thing. Advent people walk by faith and not by sight and understand that God is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Remember the prophecy given by Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform the good thing which I promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days at that time I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Did you know the book of Jeremiah concludes with the king of Babylon killing the sons of King Zedekiah, putting out his eyes, and leading him away in fetters to Babylon, where he would remain in prison until the day of his death. What a downer. Zedekiah was the last descendant of David to reign in Jerusalem. And for nearly 600 years, the stump of David was dormant. Until the angel announced to a group of shepherds, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Advent people are not discouraged or dismayed by God's delays, and they do not become complacent because they know that our inability to see God at work does not mean he's not working. In the voyage of the Don Treader by C.S. Lewis, the great lion Aslan says to the children before his departure, do not look sad, we shall meet soon again. And Lucy, the youngest of the children, then asks him, Please, Aslan, what do you call soon? And Aslan replies, I call all times soon, and vanishes from their sight. Brothers and sisters, let us preserve and protect the soonness of the Lord's return in our hearts. As Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, Let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Brothers and sisters, that is what it means to be Advent people. And that is our challenge this Advent season. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.